Welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of EHS Daily Advisor. This week, I'm looking back at some highlights from the podcast from 2022. Let's get started with a conversation I had in April at the EHS Daily Advisor Exchange in Arizona with security expert Hector Alvarez about workplace violence prevention. With businesses that, you know, have to be customer-facing, have to have people in, you know, in the business, you know, to make it work. How have security concerns changed for them over the last two years? A lot. So I just did a training for a group of grocery store managers, several hundred from multiple states, and all their employees were on the front line the entire time. And in every single session, I had somebody breaking down in tears because they're just, they're reliving how nasty some customers can be to them. And this social contract of how we treat each other is really getting broken. Mm -hmm. And how you take care of your employees and, and help build up their, their de-escalation and their competition management pieces are gonna be huge because they're exhausted. And then when you hear of people just returning back to work, what I'm hearing from our frontline workers, I've been here every day. Right, you know, right, I've yeah. been doing the work every day and, I, and I'm tired of you treating me that way. So teaching your employees how to set boundaries, how to say no, how to professionally push back, I think is gonna be really critical because we have a new group of, of customers coming into our, our, our area of responsibilities. And, and clearly, you know, I guess, you know, we were talking about people being brave online and doing things they wouldn't necessarily do in person, but people in person are now doing things they never used to do, right? I mean, Absolutely, like, without a doubt. I, you know, I think part of it was the anonymity that we had of wearing a mask and everybody kind of kept to themselves and nobody was really calling out uh, inappropriate behavior. And the kind of person that would act out inappropriately, I think, thrived in that environment and has continued to thrive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess, how do you kind of, I mean, obviously, you've got to watch for warning signs, even just, you know, when customers come in, you know, what are you telling, I guess, sort of frontline workers when they, you know, to watch for when somebody comes into their business who might be, you know, questionable? It's surprisingly easy because I don't have to teach people very often what to look for because they'll tell me, you know, we see a thousand customers a day and only one or two stand out as behavior being concerning. So what we focus on is getting people, the employees, more comfortable setting boundaries, stepping back, pushing away, saying no. Um, but it, it's rare that people don't recognize the inappropriate behavior. Because I guess if you've been working in that environment for so long, you know what to look for. You, you know, know what to look for. You're like, oh, this guy's trouble right here. You yeah, know? And it's, be, it's, be, it's based on their behavior yeah. because they're behaving very differently than the other 999 customers that came through right. who didn't act out that way. Uh, it just, I guess, nowadays, it's just a possibility of things might escalate more. Yeah. You, you, know, you know who the troublemaker is, but you're not exactly sure what they're going to do. You know, very famously and, and you know, very widely known, the airlines are struggling with inappropriate behavior, aggressive behavior right. from uh, a lot of customers. Uh, we're seeing that in a lot of different industries. Well, there's two sides to every confrontation. And so I think what the opportunity is gonna be is to train our employees how to recognize the behavior and intervene before it escalates. Right. Uh, and there's a lot of programs, people that talk about de-escalation. We have to teach our employees about escalation avoidance, how to keep the problem from escalating because we still have to fly, we still have to drive, we still have to buy stuff. And that means we're gonna interact with people and we can only control one side of the interaction. And that's our response. Plus you could also escalate if another customer or passenger 
gets annoyed at that person and starts and, and, and we're starts seeing that. there's been a couple right. of you know stories in the media where customers intervened because they they saw us happening and you know tragically in I think it's California I believe we had two customers who tried to intervene and they were both shot mm-hmm. and one of them didn't make it and and so there's extreme consequences because you don't really so want you don't want them to get in the way we don't want them to get in yeah way. you know so it, I think it's going to be a lot of resetting expectations for our employees, resetting expectations for the customers, but your organization is going to, it's going to descend to the level of violence that you allow. You're going to have as much violence or inappropriate behavior as you decide to accept. And so setting those boundaries and what are those thresholds are, are going to be what distinguishes how much of that activity you have. Do you feel like this is going to calm down at some point, or is this just sort of level we're at now? Man, I, I hate that question because I, I think... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I hate that question because I, I, I bluntly, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. I think, you know, when I looked into the eyes of these employees who were in tears because people were treating them so badly, and no clear path forward mm-hmm. was the second part of the problem, was I think is why I had a manager tell me he, he felt hopeless. Yeah. Hopeless and helpless. And all he wants to do is have a, a polished store. I think we're going to have some, some, some heavy days ahead of us. Walk through that. And then we're going to have to set boundaries again and expectations. And then we'll get back to it. The good thing about it is I, I think we're a very social creature. And we need each other. And, mm-hmm. and we need that to be a positive experience. How long it takes to get there, I just don't know. Yeah, I guess part of the problem that people became anti, even more antisocial than maybe they already were just because, by virtue of being cooped up in their homes? Or I had people that know. looked me in the eye and said, Hector, I didn't realize how much of an introvert personality I was until I had the opportunity, and it was acceptable, and I love it. I, I could wear a mask all the time. I could not talk to anybody all day long. And then taking that person and then telling them, you have to go to the office right, right. is really challenging. So, yeah, there's a lot of new uh, nuances. Like back and forth. and mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Businesses are still figuring out how to effectively roll out ESG initiatives. In this May conversation, Tyler Davey, CEO of North America for Alchemist, talks about how businesses are progressing with their ESG efforts. So I want to ask you, what do you see as the the biggest challenges facing businesses these days when it comes to environmental compliance? Yeah, that's a great question because we we've been doing not only our own research, but we've we've been studying the market now for quite a while. We hired uh, a gentleman named David Picton. He's our SVP of sustainability. He's got about uh, 25, 30 years now, I think, of experience managing uh, sustainable, sustainable programs and sustainability uh, systems. Uh, so we used him as our sounding board, and then we did a, a market research where we interviewed about 2,000 customers spread around Australia, the UK, the US, and Canada to get a really good sense of what it is uh, that's going on. I think the first part that's usually the biggest barrier it's just the sheer volume of targets that exist. And so a lot of companies right now, when they start to think about, okay, how do I start? They tend to start getting overwhelmed just by the sheer number of science-based targets that exist. Uh, just last year, there were 1,286 approved targets, which doubled 117% year over year. So when you're an organization, you're trying to figure this out around you know, the environmental side, there's a portion of those targets that will apply to you, which ones do you look at? Um, and so that, that becomes a bit of a challenge. Then the second challenge that we start to see, and this came from some of the um, customer conversations we did in that 2000 company report, lack of knowledge 
and understanding on staff at the ground level around what they should be working on, how they should be reporting this, where do they need to actually allocate their carbon usage or their energy usage starts to become a barrier. And then the final barrier that we're seeing is around just the lack of a common system and reporting engine that can report back once the uh, users are actually inputting the information, how do I report that back to the right governing bodies or to my board just so that we can move forward with it? So those tend to be the three largest areas. Um, and we think with what we've done by looking at which ones are most important from a uh, science-based targeting initiative, we think that we've, we've kind of cracked the nut a little bit with some of those areas. And obviously, you know, ESG is a is a hot buzzword right now. And, you know, I think some companies are more, uh, I guess, uh, in tune with it than others. How, how can companies change their focus toward environmental and safety stewardship? Yeah, this is um, that's another great question. So this is one of those areas where I view it a lot like uh, I think it, EHSQ systems uh, in the past and trying to drive adoption of safety programs and uh, the concept of a safety culture I think it came out in like 2016 or 2017 started becoming a common vocabulary that people started using and then you started hearing a lot more about behavior-based safety um, but everyone had to start somewhere and right now what we're seeing uh, kind of in the market is you know everyone is rushing to define a net zero target as an example but people are struggling to understand how do they get it going and then everyone's you know if you fast forward or, or sorry rewind the clock back to the way it was with safety everyone defined a target of zero incidents right we're going to get to net zero incidents with folks well then how do you do that how do you drive that type of culture and that type of change and that type of adoption inside of your ground to get people there uh, and we built a um, uh, a series of white papers over the last two years around driving safety culture and we're going to start to tailor that more towards driving ESG as well and what we, we think we have and what we think we've identified within our customers is that it all starts in a similar footprint. Your top level, your executive committee, they need to be measured and monetized around this and the moment it hits their top line and they're starting to create reward-based programs within their uh, portfolio within their divisions to start to reward other folks around driving effective, let's say, carbon reductions uh, uh, capabilities or water usage uh, reduction or start driving diversity within their, their programs or reducing uh, or ensuring that they are completely compliant with forced labor legislations or uh, cybersecurity goes down uh, to, to zero. Once they start uh, being monetized from that perspective and start talking outwardly uh, and within their organizations about how they're achieving those type of results and rewarding people, whether it be, it doesn't always have to be monetary, it can be just simple pats on the back, emails out, by the way, this team here reduced their, their energy usage by 20% month over month, well done. That starts to drive a behavioral change immediately. Then the second area that we look at to drive that behavior change becomes the systems that are in hand. Uh, if you don't have a system in hand that is easy to use, simple for people to get started with and, and uh, fast to learn, you'll start to run into problems where people, the data quality of what you're getting becomes uh, very low. And so we work really, really hard to try and get things right at the hands of the source 
so that they can use it or it's easy for them to use and input the data in, which then allows us to the third part, which is just reporting. So the reporting almost comes last through all of it because that reporting is then what drives the end result. So start at the top, get it within your systems, get it within your reward packages, be very vocal about it to drive the behavioral change and then provide the tool to the hands of the users that need to have that tool in hand so that they can start inputting real data without any data quality issues. Keeping workers safe from heat stress has been a major goal of Margaret Morrissey, Director of Occupational Safety at the Corey Stringer Institute and President of the Heat Safety and Performance Coalition. In this interview from June, Morrissey discusses ongoing efforts to prevent heat illness in the workplace. How important is it, you know, are these efforts to, to helping workers? I mean, I know it's kind of like, you know, uh, the reason you, you go to work every day, but, you know, how big of a problem is uh, heat illness and trying to prevent, you know, these kinds of problems? Yeah, so it's extremely big problem. And what the one of the most um, compelling, I guess, statistics recently is the fact that there was a recent study in by Park in 2021 who looked at worker compensation claims in California alone. And so they found based on that data that there was 20,000 heat related injuries that were unaccounted for. So not only are we finding that about 11 workers are suffering per day are either you know suffering a heat illness or dying from heat stroke but this problem is way more severe than we have even imagined so uh, that's exci what excites me as a researcher is we have so much more information to find out and um i'm just excited to continue this effort is part of it problem just uh, under reporting either from workers who don't want to lose their jobs or just from companies that don't want to, you know, look like they're, you know, making their workers work in unfair conditions? Yeah, that's certainly part of the problem. Uh, there's also a lot of migrant workers who uh, don't feel supported by their their um, employers, so don't feel that they can report any heat related injury. Um, there's also a lot of there's a huge educational piece where People don't necessarily know what a heat related illness is or what an exertional heat stroke is. So I think once we work towards better education, we'll be able to kind of better understand how the pro problem is or the magnitude of the problem and then be able to identify better strategies to prevent heat related injuries and illnesses. Um, and, you know, we spoke last summer, uh, sort of, you know, as when you guys were kind of kicking off the, the National Heat Safety Coalition. Um, since then, there's been a fair amount of legislative movement, you know, towards heat illness prevention. Um, what are your thoughts on what OSHA and then individual states like Oregon, um, what have they been doing? Yeah, so it's incredibly amazing that there is a push for federal action for heat stress. And so, I think it was about a year or a year ago where Biden announced that they're going to start this federal action for a federal heat stress standard. And so um, and it's really important. A lot of states are focused on on creating a standard as well. And so since then, really, what's happened is they've put out an advanced proposed rulemaking um, document where they asked for public comments. Individuals were able to comment. Uh, the Corey Stringer Institute, specifically um, National Heat Safety Coalition, we provided a 56-page response to a lot of questions that we would um, be able to get some sort of comments uh, towards OSHA, OSHA so they could um, 
you know, have some of our ideas in terms of what's important to implement into the standard. And as of now, um, they're going through all of those public comments. There's about a thousand comments that was submitted to OSHA. And for now, we're, we're just, it's a waiting game. Um, we have to wait until they're able to to propose this standard. And then again, after that follows a lot of more public comments right. and, and individuals addressing that. So um, I, yes, I'm so excited about this initiative or the federal action for MOSHA, but um, we still need to, to continue to push forward and implement prevention strategies and not just wait until the federal heat stress standard is implemented. And like, how long is that going to take to actually get that in the books? It's going to take a while, right? I mean, it's yeah, a so it's definitely years. So yeah. um, I think it, it depends on, on what standard, but um, we definitely will have to wait a little bit. So I think because of that, and that's one of the reasons why National Heat Safety Coalition is here, because we hope to be able to serve it as a, not only in the meantime, we're waiting for this heat stress standard, but kind of help businesses with that transition. And then once it's implemented, help everyone get into compliance as well as um, even protect their workers even further. Yeah, and that's kind of why um, individual states have been sort of enacting their own laws, uh, you know, in lieu of federal, um, a federal law. I mean, I know like uh, California, like I mentioned, Oregon, I think Washington State, Minnesota, have all kind of instituted, you know, different forms of sort of um, guidance for businesses right. in terms of, you know, uh, taking breaks, providing, uh, you know, a cool space, uh, and then just, I guess, you know, sort of the hours that people are out in the sun. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on sort of that, those individual state efforts that have been going on? Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I wish, you know, that every state would follow suit with that um, initiative. I do think that um, even though there's a federal push and a state level push for policies, um, individuals have to remember that we're still very new in a lot of occupational heat stress research. So, right, so we don't, so essentially what the, the federal or state level is gonna do is implement certain recommendations that have a lot of scientific evidence behind them uh, as they should but we're still are kind of lagging in terms of the research. So um, it's just something to keep in mind for everyone that like one size doesn't fit all. And, and it's inc incredibly important that we're pushing this forward, but you do need to find strategies that work specifically to your industry or your work right. environment and things like that. Safety culture was a much discussed topic this year. In this July conversation, Dr. Tim Ludwig, professor at Appalachian State University, talks about his book, Dysfunctional Practices That Kill Your Safety Culture. Well, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about your book. I mean, it's been out for uh, since 2018, but obviously it's still uh, super relevant. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit about, you know, sort of what the book's about. It's one of those things that you you got to get something out of your head before you feel like you put it to bed. And uh, so Dysfunctional Practices was that book. Um, you know, I do a number of keynote speeches and I tried to Try to create a new new speech every year, and I had a speech called uh, "You Can't Fix Stupid," mm -hmm. and it, uh, it, was, it was really popular. And I knew that was the one that really stuck. I really enjoyed doing it. Obviously, uh, Ron White, the comedian, 
coined, you can't fix stupid. Um, so I had to call it something else. And as I started writing it, I realized that what I was trying to do is write a book for a lot of the leaders that I've come across uh, in my career who you know, ask about why did this person do this stupid thing and what's wrong with them? I just don't understand. They're really, really frustrated. So, you know, I kind of wrote the book saying, you know, the, the, the people, the people that work for you are a product of your behavior, a product of the culture you build, a product of the systems you've built. And it's really a, it's a letter to them, if you will. Right. Uh, here are some dysfunctional practices before you start down a behavioral path, before you start down, a, you know, really improving your safety systems. Let's let's take a close look at how you treat people and how you interact with them. And then it gives me a chance after that piece to do a little bit of primer into behavior analysis, into a behavioral safety approach uh, to the point where, um, you know, I, I think someone who's finished reading the book, you know, has, has their first steps, their first steps into that path. Uh, and obviously, uh, the last two years have been pretty insane with the pandemic, but um, <laughs> how is it, what have you learned about safety culture just from the last two years? Because, you know, obviously, uh, there has been seemingly a more of a focus on it, but you know, are people actually, uh, you know, learning? Yeah, it was, it was a very interesting couple of years. It really, it really showed whether or not you had a strong safety culture, right? Because obviously uh, COVID uh, hit our culture strong in uh, the States and, and in other countries where, you know, we saw people calling it a, calling it a myth or, Mm. Uh, refusing to wear masks, and and uh, certainly everybody has to fall along their own spectrum. But you know, here we got a diversity of opinion around something that dis that deserves action, especially when you're in a, you know, in a an industrial facility, uh, warehouse, or otherwise, and working closely with folks. So, you know, you, you really can uncovered, you know, how, how closely folks work together, and what uh, at the beginning. Uh, a lot of us behavioral folks, I, I work with a not-for-profit called the Cambridge Center for Behavioral Studies. Check them out at behavior.org. Mm -hmm. And they uh, and we have a commission for behavioral safety. And I have a number of other uh, folks that have uh, their doctorates in the area and are, are some of the folks that have the best practices out there. And, you know, we got together and we put out, you know, here, here are the behavioral approach to, to COVID prevention. And uh, a lot of my clients and a lot of folks out there that I, that I kind of study, you know, put uh, put COVID related behaviors uh, front and center and, and put the behavior management techniques to to get them underway. And then, you know, when I start talking to you know, other EHS executives and uh, chatting with folks on podcasts and stuff, uh, there's a lot of, you know, outside the traditional behavioral safety, you know, anything you do to change behavior. That yeah. counts. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, getting a nursing staff and meeting people at uh, meeting people at the gate in their car and uh, the different communications that went on. And, and it's kind of invigorating time to watch. I have a annual safety summit up here in my little hamlet of Boone, North Carolina at Appalachian State University uh, that um, we've been going since our eighth year in September. Uh, for those two years, we went virtual. And that first year, I, I brought in a lot of friends and experts, and we did, you know, behavioral approaches to COVID uh, prevention and did a big virtual session. And uh, we were quite amazed with the, the amount of reach it had and the, and the amount of people that were interested in it. It, uh, it was certainly a, an impactful time, I, you know, to reflect on it. You know, what's come out of it? I, I, I've been out there in the world pretty frequently in the last uh, year. Uh, consulting and speaking and otherwise, <laughs> I don't know if anything's really changed. I don't know what you think, but, uh, you know, we're on the other side of it and we're all kind of shaking it off. 
I feel but, like we're uh, talking about it more at least, but you know, you that's know, true. You know, I don't know if the uh, if the results are borne out yet. I don't know if it's too early or. Uh, what I have seen is uh, so I do a talk on um, the uh, the kind of neuroscience behind uh, behavioral safety, and I adapted that over the uh, last couple of years to uh, an, an, I call it a neural behavioral approach to wellness because. Uh, a lot of companies that, that are part of the Cambridge Center and a lot of companies I consult with and a lot of you know, people I talk to are really focused on wellness now, you know, really yeah. broadening the safety's perspective. It's always been EHS or, you know, and health is in the middle, but mm -hmm. now they're, they're really starting to consider mental health. I mean, seriously yeah. considering it, not just, not just calling it out. Uh, there's a company, I just talked to uh, the principal this morning, uh, a large general contractor in England, uh, their name is Coste, and they're one of our Cambridge Center sites. Um, they have adopted a mental health first aid process. They, they realize that uh, their construction workers are four times more likely to commit suicide um, than, than the general population. And they, they consider that, you know, part of their, you know, part of their uh, responsibility to try to uh, avoid. And so they put together a very healthy, very healthy and, um, and, and measurable, uh, they have evidence that it works. This is mental health program that they have. And they've, they've uh, over the last, I guess, three years, they're starting right before COVID, but you know, they got, they got construction managers and supervisors openly talking about their own struggles with anxiety or depression or men, um, uh, substance abuse, uh, marital problems, and stuff like that. And, and they're trained to become first aid, the mental health first aid. So if I'm, you know, construction worker or engineer or something, and I'm going through my own stuff, I have somebody who's already talked about it and I can go talk to confidentially. And then uh, if I need services, I can get it. And uh, I, yeah, maybe, maybe COVID had something a little bit to do that because we all kind of dealt with our own little mental health problems. I mean, definitely, uh, you know, hearing a lot more about total worker health and psychological safety sort of buzzwords like that. So uh, much more, I mean, if you think about sort of past generations where, you know, you just never talked about that kind of stuff, you know, it was just it was yeah. your own business and nobody had to know about it. Uh, people are a little, a lot more open now about, you know, obviously th those things can have an effect on, you know, how you do your work, how you do your job, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. There's not a lot of data on that kind of distraction or stressor in your life impacting you know, the, the actions you take on the job that puts you at risk. And that'd be, it'd be a good line of research. I, we got some grants uh, here at the university through NIOSH, National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. I might reach out to them and ask that question. Got uh, another uh, Scott Geller um, doctoral uh, student uh, named Tommy Cunningham is, was doing some of that research in NIOSH with small businesses and construction and stuff. So, uh, it's out there, and, and but there's just not a lot of research behind it. So, you know, the research community maybe kind of falls behind what's really needed out there, but uh, companies like Costain and others are, are trying to get ahead of it in real active ways. Stress and burnout are taking their toll on workers. This September interview features Neil Shaw, founder of International Wellbeing Insights and chief de-stressing officer of the Stress Management Society, who talks about how employers can help workers deal with stress and build a sense of community and hope. It was in 2003 we created this organization with a vision to create a happy, healthy, more resilient world. It seems like we are much further away from that goal today than we came into existence. And that's not through want of trying or lack of effort. Mm. It's just because the world is becoming much more challenging. It very much feels like, Joe, that we're living in an episode of Black Mirror. You know, walking outside your front door seems to be more fantastic than anything you can find on Netflix. And 
With that being the case, it's even more important that we double down on our efforts to ensure we are supporting people and increasing resilience, given the fact that actually it's one of the biggest issues affecting our society, yet the one we are least comfortable talking about. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously, uh, you know, we'll, I guess we'll talk about it in this conversation. You know, the last couple of years have just sort of added on to, you know, the stress that people already had. Um, it made it e things even more weird. You, you literally couldn't make it up. If I told you four <laughs> years ago what was going to come, you'd have thought I'd been smoking, a, you know, on, on something funny. Because <laughs> the, the reality is that the world shut down. We had a global pandemic. In the UK, literally the day that COVID ended, all the restrictions ended, the very next day the war in Ukraine started, which, you know, for many of us gave us fears that World War Three was about to start. Yeah. Since then, we've had economic challenges, cost of living crisis, the energy crisis. We've got wildfires in Britain. Right, now, right. we hear about these things happening in California and Australia. Not in Britain. It rains all the time here. We've had the hottest summer on record. We've got to 41 degrees. You experience that in Dubai, not in England. It's normally cold and wet here. And, yeah. you know, we've got droughts and water shortages. You literally couldn't make this story up. It's very much like out of a Hollywood film. And if Hollywood's anything to go by, the next thing that's going to happen is the vaccine will turn people into zombies. That's I Am Legend Will Smith. <laughs> then aliens will attack another Will Smith film. And on top of that, I've been using that joke for a while. Now Will Smith seems to have lost the plot, given what happened at the Oscars recently. It's <laughs> It's at the point where you can either laugh or cry. But the challenges and the pressures and demands that people are experiencing every single day just to navigate the world we find ourselves in is unprecedented. So if you think about the fact that it's not like the world was an easy place lacking in any kind of stress before this all started. Right. It sadly got to the point where if we don't take urgent action, we are going to lose more people. I don't say that lightly. In, in Western society, in weird countries, when I say weird, I'm not being mean or derogatory to any countries. It's an acronym that stands for Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democratic Countries, which includes most of the countries of the people that will be listening to this podcast today. Mm -hmm. In weird countries, the main cause of death for a man under the age of 45 is what? Do you know, Jay? Uh, I don't know. It's suicide. No. It's rapidly becoming the same for a 15 to 29 year old. Um, one in four people experience mental health issues. In the US armed forces, more people take their own life than die from active combat. You're a right. soldier that puts your life on the line for a living, yet you are much more likely to die as a result of your own hand than an enemy combatant. <clears throat> Even though that is the case, we don't talk about this. Why is there not a public dialogue or a discourse on one of the biggest public health threats to our society. And give some further context to this. In October 2020, in the month of October alone, more people took their life in Japan than died from COVID the whole year. Wow. The news is dominated with stories of COVID, and I encourage everyone not to believe a word that I say. I encourage you to fact check all of this information, and you'll find that there's plenty of data and evidence to back up everything I'm saying here. But it's fascinating that even though it is that big of an issue, even though it's suggested by the year 2030, mental health will cost the global economy $6 trillion. We don't even talk about it. Now, $6 trillion is a big number, so big, most people have no context of how big. If I start accounting from one to $6 trillion right now, it will take me 190,200 years, basically the lifespan of humanity. 
it's that big a number that it will take the entirety of this of, of the, the 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 lifespan of our species to count that high yet it's often seen as a nice to do pink and fluffy token gesture to manage mental health and well-being now at what point are we going to stop putting young people into the ground at what point are we going to keep well, stop failing should i say some of the most vulnerable members of our society and rather than treating them with medication which actually is only making things worse we've obviously been pretty aware of the opioid crisis particularly in the us mm -hmm. where you, you know it's a huge killer and also we now know the data and the evidence clearly shows that depression isn't caused by low serotonin. There was a meta-analysis published a few months ago that the medication we're giving people that are depressed isn't actually helping because depression isn't caused by low serotonin, yet we are giving them SSRIs. So until we actually ensure that all lives have equal value, not lives that are lost to war or COVID or anything else, every life that is lost or damaged should have equal value. Sadly, mental health lives don't. And particularly in the modern workplace, the big challenge we face is the impact that it has on performance, productivity, safety, particularly mm -hmm. into the audience that we're talking about. Yeah. There is a direct correlation between health and safety, workplace injuries, accidents, and sadly fatalities, and people's mental and emotional state. So we have both a, a duty of care, legal and a moral obligation to our people to ensure we are creating safe and healthy working environments. That doesn't just include physical safety risk, includes psychological safety risk. So how can employers do that? How, you know, there has been a lot of talk about psych psychological safety in the last couple of years, uh, you know, as people are coming back to work, you know, from, you know, after the sort of COVID break and, you know, maybe they're working from home, now they're coming back to the office or the work site, you know, how can employers, you know, do a better job of recognizing, you know, when there's a problem? Oh, well, firstly, recognizing when there's a problem, that's a great question. Firstly, you need to recognize what normal behavior is. <laughs> yeah. Now, particularly given what's happened over the last couple of years, we don't know our people. Most people are playing a video game for eight hours that they get paid for. It's not real. One of the big challenges here is social cohesion, connection, the water cooler, coffee machine moments, the actual relationships, the workplace relationships have been you know, essentially decimated down to technical, functional, operational conversations. We are literally straight down to business. We do the thing and then we move on. And, you know, forgive me for being blunt, Joe. If I was in your studio right now, I would have arrived. We would have had a cup of tea and coffee. We would have probably got to know each other for a few minutes. Yeah. Whereas the world we live in right now is literally we're online. Two minutes later, we started recording. And that's very different. I've done a lot of television and radio work, and normally you actually get a bit of time to get to know the people that you're going to be presenting or, or being interviewed by or interviewing. That is not the world we live in anymore. Yeah. The human dynamic has been lost, and there is a cost to that. Number one, we hear about the great resignation. It's a term you may have come across where people have no connection to the people or the culture of their organization. So it's easy to leave because you have no loyalty. Right. That's this is the first time it's happened in any kind of economic downturn. Usually people double down and hold on to their jobs for dear life whilst they navigate the challenges of that economic challenge. That's not happening this time. People are leaving. And, you know, not just, you know, in one or two countries globally, yeah. we've recognized this phenomenon, which is known as the Great Resignation. Also, when you are just there to do a job and you are literally just performing a function, 
we feel alone, isolated. That has an impact on our mental and emotional state, which then means that we are less likely to follow procedures, protocols. We're more likely to make mistakes. The quality of our work can diminish. And sadly, that obviously leads to some of the risks that we've already talked about with accidents, injuries, and sadly, even fatalities. So the first thing we need to do is start to, number one, remove the guilt, shame, and stigma associated with conversations around mental and emotional well-being. Creating dialogues and safe spaces, making it okay to not be okay, ensuring people have a sense of belonging to their workplace. There's something to add here. There is a direct correlation between the degradation of community over the last 60 and 70 years, particularly in weird countries, and the increase in mental health issues and suicidality. Jamie, I ask you a question. Have you come across blue zones or countries in the world where people typically tend to live to extended years of age, you know, 80, 90, 100 years of age plus? Have you, have you heard of the, the research around blue zones? Uh, just very briefly, but... Yeah, there's a, there's a few really fascinating documentaries on, on National Geographic and Discovery Channel about this. And these are not the kind of places you would expect people to live to 100 years of age. These are essentially, you know, communities that are still functioning very traditionally, like the South American jungle, mm -hmm. northern Japan, Papua New Guinea, the Himalayas, places where they don't have hospitals and ambulances and shopping malls and supermarkets and Amazon Prime. <laughs> they don't have the internet and mobile phones and 4G or 5G. So how is it they are living happier, healthier, longer lives than we do? There are a variety of different factors. I'm not just going to pinpoint it to one. But for me, one of the key ones that came out of that research is they have a sense of community. Mm. They function as a, a society. Everybody plays a role. People look out for each other. Many of us in, in the weird or Western societies that I've described live a very individualistic existence. We live for ourselves and we're encouraged to do so. Now, as much as you might think that is a good thing that you don't need to rely on other people, as human beings, we're social creatures, and we need that. We need community. We need social cohesion. Now, particularly in the modern workplace, people travel and move to different parts of the country, different parts of the world. They may not have their, their, their kind of local community, their friends, their family, the people they grew up with around them. But the one community everyone that has a job should be a part of is their workplace community. Now, that, sadly you know, received one of the final nails in the coffin during the COVID times. Yeah. Because, you know, many people were sent home to work or weren't able to turn up for work. But even though now in most parts of the world, COVID is technically over and it has been for a while, people aren't rushing back to work. In some, some instances, companies are not even reopening their workplace fully. They've reduced real estate. So people are expected to now work virtually. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good thing. I disagree. I think this is dangerous. I think that, that we're going to start to see the longer term impacts of this over time, particularly with younger generations. It's fine if you're a little bit older and later on in your career where you've had the time to have that kind of social engagement, being around an environment where you learn by osmosis from the people around you, listening in on conversations, observing what's happening around you, because that is quite literally how human beings learn. Even little babies learn to walk and talk by observing the adults around them. Right. And the people that right. enter the workplace are learning so much just by absorbing the information that's available to them in that setting. You've got someone at early stage of their career now expected to work from home either fully or partially. How much of their growth and development is being stunted? How much of their ability to be able to, uh, you, you know, learn to communicate, navigate, build, you, you know, well-formed relationships and working in a workplace setting is being hindered 
or maybe even totally disabled because they're not being given those opportunities. So I'm not here to say, you know, force everyone back to work, but equally, I'm not saying go the other end of the spectrum, which is all virtual work. And we need to find that balance where people do have some time, at least, where they'll be able to work in social settings where they are around their colleagues. And, you, you know, part of this is also giving us the opportunity to recognize where people are. How do you get to know your people when all you get to see is what they're willing to show you? Correct. Back-to-back -back Zoom teams or Skype calls doesn't give you the full picture. 60% of people on a, on a video conference call are not dressed from the waist down. That is not a true statistic. I totally just made that up. But you get what I'm saying. You wouldn't know even if they were, right? Yeah. I could be sat around the pants. You wouldn't know because all you see is why, how I'm dressed from the waist up. Yeah. Now, the point I'm making, we don't get the full picture. If you don't have the full picture, you don't know where your people are. How will you know when they're compromised? How will you know where they're displaying signs of symptoms that they may be overwhelmed? They may be facing burnout. They may be having mental health issues or mental illness. And this is really the first step. And also then creating a safe, a, a, a safe space in the working environment where people can open up and ask for help without that being seen as a sign of weakness or a vulnerability. And this is really one of the things that I'm, I'm encouraging you to do, uh, to, for, for everyone listening to, to, to do, is how do we start to form better bonds and connections and relationships with the people that we work with beyond the technical, functional, operational ones? Actually taking the time to get to know your people. Now, our theme for Stress Awareness Month this year, which was April, was about belonging and a sense of community. And that really is one of the things that I encourage everyone listening to foster is how do we start to foster that sense of belonging and community, which doesn't just help with mental health, it helps with many of the societal issues that we're facing today with you know, xenophobia, we've had issues around race relations, LGBTQ, or a whole variety of things. And you know, in any well-functioning society, everybody is able to belong. Our last highlight comes from November when Langdon Dement, Global EHS Advisor for Evitex, and Julian Taylor, Head of Enablement for Evitex, talk about how companies should stop focusing on safety training and start coaching people. You know, one of the things that uh, you guys wanted to talk about was not focusing so much on training and focusing more on coaching. So I was wondering if you could jump into that and feel free to take the lead, whoever wants to. Joel, so do you want to lead that one? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll pick that up to start with Jay. Um, I think we've Really, this has been a, 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 a fuse that's been burning for, for quite a while with me because I've got a, a background in training um, and we've watched training evolve over a period of time. So if you think traditionally, we used to drag people off the shop floor and put them into a classroom, maybe for a day, two days, three days. Um, we then evolved into e-learning where we take them away from the shop floor and we'd, we'd, we'd put them into maybe a room where they would they'd sit on a computer and they complete training. And I think what I'm really sort of understanding and, and focusing on is the fact that it's not the most effective way to, to transfer knowledge and really ensure that people understand the best way of doing things. And, and that relates to everything that we do in terms of training within an organization, not just safety. Um, there are some stats out there, and I know because I've been putting a presentation today, together today, so, for example, if, if, if we put somebody into, into some kind of lecture to, as, as a training opportunity, people on average will retain 5% of that knowledge. Wow. So it's, not an, it's, not, it's, it's just not an effective way of, of getting people to work more safely. Um, 
and and the thing I'm passionate about because of my background is, is coaching. Um, and and we see coaching happening in lots of other areas of organisations. Don't always happen. Don't always see it happening so often within safety. Um, but when we stop and think about it, I mean, Jay, I'd, I'd say to you, how how if you've got kids, how how good are they at, at sort of changing their behaviours if you just tell them to do something? I mean, they have their moments, but they're they're. They're both adults now, so they think they're a little better than they used to be. Yeah. So, so minor adults, but they still they still don't always do the things I tell them to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as human beings, we don't respond well to being told to do things. And, and that term lecture is quite a good term because actually when we lecture to people, they don't take that knowledge on board. And another number I was looking at was quite an interesting graphic which which was really saying that if we want people to be able to sort of recall information effectively and easily and quickly on average we've got to get them to review or, or reflect on that information seven times um, and we've all heard managers haven't we we've all heard managers saying I keep telling them and they don't do it differently um, well maybe you only told them six times so you've, you've got to tell them a seventh time um, so really, I think one of, one of the things that I, I think is, is, is a really big tip for people moving forwards is how can we start to get more coaching happening within the workplace, particularly around safety? Because actually that's where we start to see people taking things on board. And if you reflect on your own experiences, if you, when we think about learning, if you go and do something and actually people help you to sort of recognize and understand how to do something yourself. So, so you actually come to that, that sort of self-recognition or self-learning around something. It's far more effective than trying to read manuals or trying to sit in lectures. Um, so to me, the challenge is how can we get coach, a coaching culture around safety? So that means, first of all, potentially you've got to get managers on board and you've got to start to enable them and empower them to be coaches and recognizing that every time they go out on the shop floor and they're talking to people and talking around safety, there's an opportunity. And it's that opportunity to help people and understand why they do certain things and help them to understand how they could do it differently. Langdon, did you want to add to that? No, I mean, I think you hit right on it. It's one of those, it's one of those aspects, you know, right, we've seen for the last, probably 10, 10 to 15 years, you think about how training has shifted. So we went from always being classroom. We went from always being kind of that, that long-term face-to-face training. And then we have kind of shifted that to more of the online training. What was that? What did that look like? Trying to encapsulate as much as we could from that perspective. Then we realized we were going too far to the online portion because th there is an aspect of the face-to-face, -face, the real that that you can't grasp. Mm -hmm. And I was always a proponent of blended anyway. So then you say that, and then you start realizing we're giving this training, we're making it as available, as easy to to use, to grasp as possible. But is that really the same thing as actually learning, as actually being coached on how to do something? You know, and I, I think that's where that that difference is. I, I recall when I was, I was oh, probably third or fourth grade. I remember I was learning how to play the, the saxophone, and 
at the time my teacher was like, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. And it's that standpoint of if, if we're just trying to give people whatever that as employees, I mean, I do it myself. We learn how to cut corners where applicable to do the job as safely as possible without being too safe, but so we can still be productive. So when you think about that, how can we better coach? How can we better get that insight in with our employees? And I, I think that's, I agree with Jules. That's one of the crucial elements of just kind of shifting the way we're thinking about that. Is, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, say Jay, um, and, and it can reflect on this in, in sort of different ways from your own personal experiences. I, I love playing all sorts of different sports. Um, and people can show me how to do things. So they can, so it, they can show me how to swing a golf club, for example. But actually, that, that doesn't always really help me in terms of enabling me to be able to swing a golf club effectively. So it's, it's that simple thing of actually, if I do it myself, maybe with a coach stood next to me, sort of asking me questions and, and suggesting I try things slightly differently, it's a far more effective experience. Um, as, opposed so just, that, as opposed to just telling you what to do. As opposed to telling me, you can tell me until you're blue in the face, yeah. but I'm not, going to be a, I'm not going to be a better golfer as a result of it. Um, and I can I can echo that. I've seen his swing before, Jay. <laughs> he has. He has. Um, and and I think I think again reflects on the multiple trainings you might have done as individuals. I mean, the the other example I always give is I, I've done lots of, of of training courses around Excel. But I'm still still spectacularly bad at, at, at trying to use Excel because what I don't do is take that learning and immediately put it into practice. So actually it, it reinforces it in my mind. Um, so, so I think when we're, we're not saying stop training people, what we're saying is that actually as a, as a part of your approach to training, you've got to train, but then you've got to have this coaching mentality to reinforce the learning um, and, and help, help go through those seven, seven reminders, those seven reviews so that, so that people really understand it. And that sort of uh, get out from behind your desk and go, you know, actually talk to people, and help yeah, yeah. Problems, right? Yeah, um, and and uh, yeah. So stop, stop, stop. Be, yeah, I mean, how we can unshackle people from the desk, and and because that, I suppose, what do you want to do as a health and safety professional? And to me, one of the things that you want to be doing is I want to be out there supporting people. Um, what I think one of the quick things to add around the learning piece is we've talked about classroom training we've talked about e-learning actually the future as well jay is is in micro learning um we're actually with the technology we have available to us now potentially people can be doing micro bite-sized pieces of learning actually at the point of work where it's utterly relevant mm -hmm. and actually they put it immediately into practice so if you think for example of if somebody's going to operate a piece of machinery, they could potentially scan a QR code on that piece of machinery. And part of the training is that they work through a pre-work checklist um, before they actually do anything. So it's immediate, it's in the moment, and actually it, it's there as I'm about to start to operate this thing. Um, did the pandemic sort of add to this challenge because so much stuff was being done remotely uh, whether it's training, you know, you couldn't get a big group of people in a room for a, for a while. So, you know, it's easier just to, you know, assign them an e-learning course and then kind of forget about it. 
Langdon, do you want to take that one? Yeah, I, I think, tra- you know, that's a, we, you know, Jay, let's don't maybe go down that road totally. But I, and the reason I'm saying that is I think, I honestly think the pandemic has created a lot of setbacks, not just, you know, we spent some time talking about the training aspect and learning and, and so on. But when you think about it from a, a general health and safety standpoint, I think the pandemic really created a massive setback because we started refocusing on certain av- avenues of health and safety or maybe of our organizational processes. And, and then we missed some of the, what I'll say is mundane, not meaning in a negative, but the routine aspects of health and safety. You know, there's a, a number of organizations that I've met with uh, and whether it was clients, potential clients, just general uh, health and safety execs when I've had some meetings. And it's 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 not funny, but it's almost funny how many of them have had that similar theme of, I almost hope OSHA or regulation, regulatory body doesn't come in because our, our health and safety is, is lacking. And that's crazy when you think about it. But And I understand, you know, a lot of the focus got put on infectious disease prevention and so much, but it almost showed that we were lacking. A lot of us had infectious disease prevention plans. We had programs for exposure control and, and so on. But I think it really showed that even though we did, we really did not. You know, we had our we had our flu plan and it stopped at that. Right. So I, I think, yeah, I do. I think it has really created a new almost precedent of sorts because now a lot of the workplaces, it is the home or it's different organizations. And are, are we even doing general health and safety inspections there when that is their new workplace? You know, so I, to me, that's a pretty broad one that that if you really look at it, yeah, COVID has, it's changed a lot. And I don't know that it's ever going to go back to the way it was, which isn't a bad thing because that, that's an opportunity to learn. And how can we grow showing that health and safety truly is on and off the job? And I'm using my fingers as quotations. I forgot we don't have the camera on. <laughs> but because it doesn't matter where you are, you know, we used to look at it as I'm on the job. I'm doing my health and safety there in the workplace. When I go home, I build a tree house or I do something for my children in the back. And I might throw some of that general, oh, I don't need my glasses. They're way over there. It's 100 degrees in the summertime. I'm just going to do this one cut, you know, whatever it is. And I think now it shows that how important it is that no matter where you are, there is a level of health and safety that we need to take into extra consideration, whether it's the training, whether it's the general and just a quick safety startup checklist kind of thinking, ensuring that everything that you have is is ready to go. So to me, it has made a, a massive change, but at the same time, I think it's, I think it's almost a good thing because it, it can help us to take it back to the basics of just general thinking of health and safety. That wraps up episode 138 of EHS on Tap. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at ehsdailyadvisor.blr.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Google Play, iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. Happy New Year.